in a series in the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, and we're on chapter 22, and if you don't have your Bible, the blue Bible in front of you is provided for you to follow along, page 881, Luke 22. We're going to read several different verses. As I was making my way in here this morning, several people who knew I went to Furman University wanted me to say something about Furman's great victory over UVA. And I said, well, no, I can't say anything from the pulpit about that. So I I want you to see me exercising great self-discipline for not mentioning Furman University's victory on uh, Thursday. (laughs) We're in a very um, interesting part, a very dense part of the Bible here. And I like the, the phrase from the offering, let no other trust intrude. And so um, that's part of what I'm going to say, that we can really trust in Jesus, even when there are a lot of, there's a lot of chaos. And in chaos, you want to grab for other things. Let no other trust intrude. Let's stand together, and we'll read several different verses from Luke chapter 22. And we'll begin with verses 3 through 6. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray Jesus to them, and they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray Jesus to them in the absence of a crowd. Chapter 22, verse 31 through 34. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times deny three times that you know me. And then verse 39 through 46. And Jesus came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed Jesus. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And Jesus withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing... Remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to Jesus an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, Jesus prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. You may be seated. Let's take a moment to reflect on God's word. As most of you know, I've been using the events of um, an actual storm called the perfect storm to frame what I've been talking about, what we've been talking about in these last few chapters of Luke. And if you remember, in 1991, there was this massive collision of three storms. And I have been taking that as a picture of Jesus entering into Jerusalem. 
he too is entering into this collision of storms. Here's one of the reports from 1991 about the perfect storm. It says this, all by itself, one hurricane has colossal force. A mature hurricane is by far the most powerful event on the earth, wrote Sebastian Younger in his book, The Perfect Storm. He goes on to say the combination, of the, co the combined nuclear arsenal of the U.S. and the former Soviet Union don't contain enough energy to keep a hurricane going for one day. In 1991, the power of a hurricane joined forces with two other massive weather systems to create a perfect storm. It was a colossal collision, a colossal collision of two seasons, winter and summer. Arctic energy coming down from Canada was driving steadily southward, while this ball of tropical energy from the hurricane was moving northward, and when they met, it caused the storm to explode. So this morning, the storm is going to explode. These three massive systems all converge in this one little place we know as the Garden of Gethsemane. It's the colossal collision point. It's when the storm begins to explode because we have all the other storms here. We have the spiritual storm we read of Satan entering into, Ju into Judas to betray Jesus here in the garden. We see the Roman soldiers that are led by Judas to arrest Jesus. And then we have all the religious people here. We have the Pharisees and the chief priests and the elders and the disciples. So these three systems are converging on this one small olive grove just outside of Jerusalem. And what I want us to notice three features in this passage is first I just want us to watch Jesus. And we'll, we'll kind of go before and a little after just to notice something important about Jesus. I want us to pick up on a warning that Jesus gives us so we can be warned when we enter into our own storms. And then I want to talk about returning to Jesus. So watching Jesus receiving a warning from Jesus, and returning to Jesus, watching Jesus. What I want us to marvel at and be encouraged by is that in the middle of this colossal collision, Jesus is in control. That, that, that could just be enough right there. That here we have these massive storms, we have this massive explosion when they meet, and standing in the middle of all this is Jesus completely in control. It's important because when Jesus entered into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, and he entered into these three powerful storms, we have to not think that Jesus is like a fourth storm. And that, that may be what you think. Well, now here comes like an even more powerful storm. That's not what Jesus is doing here. Jesus understands that God is the author of all the storms. That's, to being totally, that's totally different than just being another more powerful storm. Jesus understands God has designed the storms to bring about this explosion. Je Jesus knows that God is the author of, of a novel, like the author of a novel. The author isn't just a powerful influence on the story. 
He's the creator of the story. He, he's the one who's designing all the things to happen in the story. So he's just not a force in the story. He is the creator of the story. So when Jesus enters into this colossal force, he's not just entering as, as another role player. He's the author of everything that's happening. And I want to just show you, and I want to maybe take more time than is necessary for you to appreciate, because we've sort of run, run by these in the last few weeks, exactly how Jesus is in control. So if you just want to follow him back, back through, let's turn back to Luke 19, and we're going to see just several places. If we could go quickly through these texts, Jesus is entering into Jerusalem, and he says to, to his disciples, go into the village in front of you, where on entering it, you're going to find a colt, and it's a colt which no one's ever written on or sat on. Untie it and bring it here to me. It's just a tiny little arrow to say, I know exactly what's happening. I mean, I'm the author of the story, so I know exactly what's going to happen. When you get into this town, you're going to find a colt, and then you're going to bring it back to me. Luke 21, verse 6. Uh, Jesus is talking about the end of the, of the temple. As for these things that you will see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another. Jesus totally understands when the end of the temple is going to happen. It's as if he's in control of everything. There's going to be a day, it's going to be 40 years from now, and you, most of you all are going to live to see it. Luke 21, verse 25. And there will be signs in the sun and the moon and stars and on the earth... And nations will be perplexed. People will be fainting with fear and foreboding. For the powers of heaven will be shaken. And then you will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and glory. Jesus is in control of the end of the temple. Jesus is in control of the end of the world. He's not just a storm. He's riding the storms into the end of the world. Luke chapter 22 verse 8. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go prepare the Passover for us that we may eat. Well, where would you have us prepare it? Well, when you enter into the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters. Tell him the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where's the guest room where I may eat the Passover? And he'll show you a large upper room. You feel that? It's just I want you to just feel the momentum. Jesus is completely orchestrating every small and large event. Luke 22, verse 22. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. See, he's sitting around this table, and I'm going to go exactly how Judas wants it to go. No. How the chief priests want it to go. No. It, I'm going to go exactly how it has already been determined. I love this Greek word. It's the word that we use for our horizon. So just like the author of the story, Jesus knows what's on the horizon. And so I just thought this week, well, well how far back does Jesus' view of the horizon go? I mean, he's standing here or he's sitting here at a table and he says, hey, I know what's on the horizon. But if you read another passage of scripture, listen to this from 1 Peter 1. It was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed, but you were redeemed with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. 
He was chosen before, you know what it says? Before the creation of the world. Wow. I mean, you're supposed to stop and say, okay, I, I can't even understand that. that. That's so much bigger than I can imagine. It's not just I can kind of sense something happening tomorrow or the next day or even next year. No, before the creation of the world, a plan was determined that's being uh, played out right here in Luke 22. So Jesus is in control of this whole thing. In Luke 22, verse 31, Jesus knows what's going to happen to Peter. In Luke 22, verse 47, it talks about the, the arrest and some of your um, Bibles will have a little title there, and it will say, The Arrest of Jesus. And I think it should be The Control of Jesus. It's like he comes out of the garden and he gets arrested. No, he comes out of the garden knowing he's in complete control. Remember Peter tried to be, take control? I'm going to pull out the sword, and I'm going to start a bad aim, I guess, but... I hit the guy on the side of the head, his ear comes off, and Jesus says, hey, put away your sword, and he picks up the man's ear maybe, or maybe he just does it with his hand, restores the, guy, the guy's ear. Hey, I'm, I'm in complete control. I mean, if you're that soldier and Jesus he just healed your ear, what do you think when you're going to tie Jesus up? I mean, I'm under his control, right? I mean, that would at least be like he can really do whatever he wants. In John, I think it's in 18, they come and say, we're looking for Jesus, and it's this whole group of people, the chief priests, the Pharisees, the, the soldiers, and Jesus says, I am he, and John records that they all fell down. It's just a, a tiny little marker for the reader, for the people that were there saying, hey, who's in control here? It's me. All hell is just about ready to break loose. These three storms are just about ready to collide and explode, but Jesus is in control of every situation. If you were to turn to Acts chapter, 20, uh, Acts chapter 2, sort of an epilogue to Luke, because Luke wrote Acts, he says this, Peter is now speaking to the Jews, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, listen, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So what I want us to hear, what I want us to be marvel, marvel at, is that no matter the chaos happening in this world, Jesus is in control. He's the author of every story. Now, some of you might say, well, if God is the author of every story, then I can't be held responsible for my actions. Would any of you think that? Yes, you would think this. I mean, if he's the author of the story and I'm just a character in the story and he's already written my story, then I can't really be responsible. That's what somebody might say. How could I, how, if everything's determined, then how can we be judged? Which is a great question. And don't you wish we had time to unpack the answer to that question? But we don't today. So I just lay it out there. I'm going to let you think about it for some time and chew on it, try to find an answer. There's a good answer, but that would be the whole sermon. 
and I don't have enough time for that. What I do have time for is to point out that Jesus was and is in control of all things. So here's a question I have. Why does it matter that God is in control? I mean, we're saying God is sovereign, same way of saying God is in control. And you might say, okay, I believe that, but why does it really matter? There's lots of great answers here. Let me just give you a few. First, I'm not alone. I'm not forgotten. The psalmist says, even when I walk through the valley of shadow of death, what does he say? You are with me. See, I'm, not, I'm never alone. He's, he's in control. It's not, I'm not just out here trying to make it on my own. God is in control. He's with me. It, it brings comfort that whatever's happening to me right now, it's not random. It's not karma. I may not understand why God is writing my story this way. That's definitely a question you might have. But I know it's not random. And it's not like karma. Well, I must have done something, you know, really bad to get this. It's not the way it works. God's in control. There's, there's what's called a meta-narrative. There's a much bigger story happening that you can't see and that you can't possibly know. I mean, I, I have my two-year-old granddaughter with me this weekend. And uh, what are we doing, granddad? Just get in the car. I mean... That's all I need you to do. You just get in the car, and where are we going when we get there? I mean, just, you know, like question after question, and it's totally understandable from a a two-and-a-half-year-old, but the two-and-a-half-year-old can't possibly understand what I'm trying to do, and I just say, hey, can you just get in the car? Can you trust that I'm driving? I mean, do we want her to drive around? No. But what about you? We're, we're really not much different than the two-year-old. Hey, God, I'll be willing to get in the car. Can you tell me why we're turning right here? Because I don't really want to go right. And then we either bail out and try to take control or we lose confidence in God or we begin to trust in other things. Because God's in control, you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be in control. You don't have to be right. Because God is in control, I can forgive my enemies and I can forgive those who sin against me. Why is that? Because if there's a God and he's in control, then he's going to take care of justice in the end. See, if there is no God, then you're kind of stuck. I mean, you're trying to forgive, but you're like, but the person's getting away with it and I've got to get revenge or I've got to get justice. You feel like you've got to be in control. But if God's in control, either somebody has sinned against me and Jesus is going to pay for their sin, which is enough, right? Or God is going to help them with justice. I don't have to do it. If God's in control, then even if mankind does something that is evil, God can redeem it for good. This is so important. And like a cord through the Bible, you see it over and over again. Probably the easiest place to point out, Genesis chapter 50. You remember Joseph? He was enslaved, or he was sold by his brothers, and then he was sold into slavery into Egypt, and he ends up rising to power, 
and they come to him saying, hey, we're starving. And then he reveals himself to them to say, hey, I'm, I'm the one that you sold into slavery. You remember what he says? Uh, chapter 50, verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me. What does it say? But God meant it for good. What you did was evil, and you're responsible for it. But God can redeem it. He can mean it for good. And we see the same thing about the crucifixion. It's the world's greatest evil, yet God designed Jesus' death for good, for my good. So God still has the power to bring out good things designed to be, that, are, that are designed by men to be evil. But God is in control, and even the worst events can be redeemed. There's a hymn writer that you may be familiar with a few of his hymns. Uh, he lived in the 1700s. He was a friend of John Newton, uh, author of Amazing Grace. His name is William Cooper. And his personal life was full of anguish and despair. His mother died when he was five. He struggled his entire life with depression. He tried to commit suicide at one point. And he wrote a hymn called God Moves in Mysterious Ways. So listen to this person who is in a, an emotional storm. His life circumstances are stormy. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. You feel that? He's not a, he got, William Cooper got it right. Jesus isn't just a storm entering into a bigger storm. He's riding on the storms of your life. Deep in unfathomable minds, in other words, in dark places of never failing skill, God treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Any fearful saints here? Anybody dealing with depression? Anybody in a place where it feels like all hell is breaking loose? Anybody here trying to grab control? Don't be afraid. It's not random. God's in control. And even if people mean things for evil, God can redeem it for good. Amen? So Jesus is in the middle of this storm, in control of it, and then he wants to turn to his disciples and give them a warning. He is trusting in God, and he wants to warn his disciples. He does it in a way that sounds like a phrase that you and I are familiar with. Don't doubt in the dark what God has told you in the light. You've ever heard that phrase? So you know something's true. It's in the light of day. You trust it. And then darkness comes in. You go, I don't know if that's true anymore. So don't, don't doubt in the dark what God has revealed to you in the light. And so Jesus is saying, you guys, you've got to trust. And if you look at chapter 21, Jesus is talking about the end of the world. And he's saying it's going to be chaotic. And in verse 34, very important little passage here, 2134, but watch yourselves. See, when all this chaos starts, starts happening in the world, you've got to watch yourself. 
Because when chaos breaks loose, you can trust in other things. This was the warning Jesus issued to his disciples in the garden. Hey, guys, all hell's just about ready to break loose. It's in a way that I can't even explain it to you. But pray. Pray that you don't fall into temptation. I mean, it's right here. It's just about ready to explode. And if you're not ready, if you're not spiritually prepared, if you're not praying, if you're not watching out for yourselves, you're going to be tempted to abandon me. So prayer is one of those spiritual disciplines. It's the exercise of putting yourself in the way of God. So whether you're praying or reading your Bible or just coming to church, you're just saying, hey, I'm just going to put myself in the way of God so he can strengthen me. It's part of watching yourselves. But we know what happens to the disciples. They're sleeping for sorrow. Some of us know this. Just the life gets so heavy, you just go, I got to go to bed. Or I can't get out of bed. I just, I just can't face it. I just, all lights out. I just don't want to deal with one more issue, one more problem. I can't do it. They're sleeping for sorrow. They feel the weight. But by saying yes to their desires from their body, when it came time, they didn't have the, the strength to say no to themselves. It's, it's, spiritual disciplines is hard. And Jesus, that's why Jesus is saying, watch out. Because if you're not watching out, you can just you know, be tempted to just wander away. So watch out. Don't fall asleep. Because if you say yes to your body, there's going to be a time you can't say no. And Peter tries to take control at first, and then he denies Jesus. Watch out. Judas. The terrifying verse here, then Satan entered into Judas. 22 verse 3. How are we supposed to think about this? I would say Jesus exhorted the disciples to put themselves in the way of God, of, of him. But all along, Judas has been near Jesus, but putting himself in the way of the world. We know this from John chapter 12. John tells us that Judas was a thief. So the disciples and Jesus didn't have much money, but what they did came to one common purse, and guess who was in charge of it? He was in charge of the checking account. And when Judas had some needs, he didn't tell anybody. He just took some money out and spent it on himself. When Mary anoints Jesus with this expensive oil, one person complained. You know who it was? Judas. Hey, this could have been sold for all kinds of money. I guess, wonder why, Judas. <laughs> Big payday for you. See, he's very close to Jesus, but he, he's putting himself in the way of the world. Jesus, Judas never refers to Jesus as Lord, only as rabbi. See, he, he's a teacher, but he's not really a, my Savior, my Lord. Jesus refers to Judas as an unbeliever. So if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, 
what I want you to see from the passage is that we Christians know painfully from our scriptures and even from our own experience that not everyone who calls themselves a follower of Jesus really is a follower of Jesus. We know that. Even those who appear to be closest to Christ. We know that people can call themselves disciples, yet routinely they put themselves in the way of the world instead. And really it feeds their deepest hungers, and they're not really for Jesus. So when Satan is looking for somebody to pick off, oh, he's got an easy target. He's got an easy target. Judas, he's been putting himself in my way the whole time. And so when I need somebody to betray, he cannot say no. The Bible describes Satan as someone who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. It's possible, hear me if you're a Christian, it's possible to get devoured by standing right next to Jesus. What, what a warning. What a ter- terrifying warning. So let me ask you, member of Christ Community Church, are you watching out for yourself? It doesn't say, have Paul watch out for you. I mean, I'm doing my best here, but you know, you've got to watch out for yourself. I mean, right now you're putting yourself in the way of Jesus Christ, and I'm so glad. But you can do it, but spend the rest of the week putting yourself in the way of the world. And it really develops your appetites and hunger. So when Satan's looking for somebody, oh, you're such an easy target. So are you watching out? Are you doing what it takes during the week so that you're not falling asleep when you really need to be awake? Last point. What happens when you fail? We really need this last point, do we not? Because a lot of us are saying, okay, I know I'm a lot like Peter. I'm afraid I might be like Judas. What happens if I fail? What do you do when you don't actually trust in Jesus and instead you trust in your own strength or you fail because of your fears? And Jesus says to Peter very beautifully in verse 32, Peter, I know you're going to fail. I also know you're going to turn again. And when you turn again, I'm going to be here. So beautiful. I I know, I know, Peter, Satan has wanted to sift you. And when he says that, he means plural, all of you. But then he looks at Peter and says, you're going to run away just like the rest of the disciples, but you're going to turn again. And when you turn again, turn towards me. Anyone here this morning gotten turned around? There was some time in your life, it could have been six months ago or 25 years ago, you were just on fire for Jesus and the world didn't matter and you were moving forward, but somehow you got yourself in the way of the world, little by little. A little puff of fame, a little puff of money, a little puff of academics, a little puff of something, and you just started turning slowly, one degree, and now really you're turned around. Turn again. When you turn, Jesus is going to be standing right there. It's 
It's not going to be like, I know Jesus is out there somewhere. No, he's going to be right there. Turn again, trust in him. And be careful and listen carefully. When we turn around, we're not turning around to tell Jesus this, I'll do better next time. That's not what you're supposed to say. Why? That's trusting in me. Do you, you see that? I've done this a thousand times. Jesus, I failed. I promise I'll do better next time. Paul, you haven't turned around yet. You're completely trusting in yourself. I mean, it sounds like you've turned around, but even in your turning around, it's self-centered. And I'm like, oh, God, help me. Even when I'm trying to turn around, I'm not turned around. So what do I trust in? If I turn around and I can't say I'll do better, I want to trust in something. It can't be myself. So what am I trusting in? We are trusting in the trust of someone else. I'm not going to trust in my trust. I'm going to trust in the trust of someone else. I cannot be trustworthy. But I know somebody who can be trustworthy, and his trustworthiness can be on me. And who is trustworthy? Jesus. You feel that in the garden? God, if there's any way this cup can pass before me, and I don't have to take it, I don't want it. But I'll trust in you. That's a critical moment right here. And what Paul Phillips is doing is saying, I can't do that. But I trust in someone who can do that for me. So I'm trusting in his trust. Maybe a, a way to think about it is you've heard of these uh, people that, that sometimes refer to as trust fund babies. You know this term? So it's usually used as a negative thing. But it, it's somebody who's made a lot of money and put some money in a trust for a child or a relative. And they're a trust fund baby. So what do they do? They live their whole life off of the work of someone else. Do you see my point? I'm a trust fund baby. I'm completely trusting in his trust. I'm never going to say, oh, I, I got my little trust in. I contributed my dollar. No, no, you don't have any dollars to, to trust in Paul. It's all trust in him. I'm, I'm totally trusting him for my salvation. So when I turn again, and when Peter turns again, he has to learn, I cannot trust in myself. That's what got me in trouble. I'm trusting in the trust of someone else. Let's just review. Are you trusting that there's a good God in control of everything, even when all hell breaks loose? Even if someone is actually doing evil to you, there is a way it could be redeemed, either now or in the future for good. That's, a, that's tough to trust at that moment. Let me warn you. It's easy at that moment to slip away, whether it's Peter or Judas. No matter how close you may be to Christ, it's very easy to wander away. Don't wander away. But if the world has turned you around, 
I have good news. You can trust in Jesus' trust. You don't have to say today, hey, I got energized. I'm going to be worthwhile this week. You, you still hadn't turned around. I've done that many times after a sermon. And I'm giving the sermon. <laughs> the good news of the gospel is that you can trust in Jesus. And his trust is completely given to you. So when God sees you, he sees Jesus' trust and says, My son, my daughter, welcome home. Let's pray together. Lord, this is a, this is a full plate here of information. And my prayer is just by your spirit, some strand of these verses connects with a need, a pain, a question, a desire that you would come in and meet, correct, reorient. Lord, for the believers here who at some point in their lives and maybe now have gotten turned around, would you help them turn again, not to trusting in themselves, but trusting in you. For those who are living in chaos and pain, they're walking through a shadow of death, maybe death of a dream, maybe death of their bodies. Would you be with them, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing our closing song.